You're listening to the Trans Narrative Podcast. The Trans Narrative Podcast is dedicated to fostering a safe and inclusive space for the trans community. It provides a platform for trans individuals to connect, share their stories, and find support within their own community. Join me, Caroline Kenny, Maria Lappi, Tina Permakis, Lucy Balzano, and the rotating panel of gender diverse co hosts as we create a space where trans voices are heard and celebrated. The Trans Narrative Podcast may contain explicit material, sensitive topics, and discussion. Trigger warnings are provided in advance. Welcome back to the Trans Narrative Civic Report. I'm Caroline Penny. Today is November 15, 2023, and we are reporting for the news of November 13th to November 19th. We want to make sure you're informed about the current legislation. We believe that being informed is essential to understanding the challenges facing our communities. We want to make sure that you have the right tools to prepare for any kind of conversation you may need to have with your loved ones about what this means to you and how it impacts our communities. Today, I'm joined with our correspondent from the Transformations Project, Tabitha Bridget, and Cecily Thomas, and from the Trans Narrative Podcast, Noah Buchanan. And we have a special guest to celebrate Trans Week of Awareness, maybe a girl. Tonight, we are embarking on a deep dive into some truly pivotal and pressing discussions around the trans narrative. We've got an array of topics lined up, each shining a light on different facets of the trans experience and the ongoing journey towards understanding and equality. There is a lot on our plate for this episode, and we're thrilled to have you with us as we explore these crucial issues. But before we get started, if you haven't already, please follow, like, and subscribe if you can. Leave us a rating. You can find us at uh, anchor.fm slash transnarrative and also at anchor.fm slash civic report. That's right. Starting in 2024, you will only be able to find this on anchor.fm slash civic report and also at transformationsproject.org. Anyway, hi, everyone. Welcome back. It's so good to have all of you here. Welcome to the Trans Narrative for Now Civic Report. Um, I'm Caroline, obviously, and I'm joined with Tabitha. Tabitha B, hi. Hello. How are you doing today? I'm so good. I'm so good. It's so good to have you here as always. And Noah Buchanan from the Trans Narrative. Hello, hello. Hello. It's such an honor to be here. Thanks for being here. And Cecily Thomas from the Transformations Project, a friend of ours. You are here. <laughs> Hi, welcome. It's so good to have you on the Trans Narrative for now Civic Report. <laughs> I'm su- I'm super happy to be here. Thank you so much for having me on. I can't wait to get into today's episode. Oh my God, I'm so excited. There's a lot to go through, and uh, you know, kind of picking up where we lo- left off last week. Um, we're going to get into like one comment that Tabitha and I had made. And now we, that's how we're going to start the show is off that one comment about a paywall. So <laughs> if that's okay with everyone. Um, yeah. What, and, one comment from last week has turned into an entire segment this week as it goes. Right. That's right. We have, about, we have about 15 bullet points on that one exact topic. So paywalls and access to information. We'll get into consequences of anti-trans legislation. And then we'll go into the, um, the the anti-trans legislative update which is now going to be from the live stream of the transformations project on fridays which actually featured tabitha and i this week so more of us how exciting 
Uh, coming back from that, we'll be uh, going into failing transphobia. And somewhere along the line, we'll have our special appearance by maybe a girl. When that will be, we do not know. But we'll go into victories in the legislature, followed by the turning of tides. And then we'll finish off with uh, a special message about celebrating our community. It is Trans Awareness Week, so we want to take time to give awareness to our community and the, the accomplishments that we've made and, and just some good stuff to end us off on the week. So with that being said, um, we're going to get into the next topic or we're going to start the show. But before that, if you would, please subscribe $10. That's the only way you can go any further into this podcast. You cannot, I have stopped it and you have to now pay to get, <laughs> what to are get we for you now? <laughs> yeah, we are. Yeah. Unfortunately, if you'd like to go any further, you have to subscribe to the program uh, with your email and give us some sensitive information. And then with $3.99, you can access the rest of this episode. Okay. Now that That's our really audience how has... paywalls work though. Isn't it? Oh my God. <laughs> that is, that is. That's it. Uh, that's a perfect segue into paywalls. Yes. All right. Now that everyone's paid to get to this point, welcome. Glad to have you. Tabitha, take us away. And even, even if you haven't paid, we'll get you. We'll get it. <laughs> we'll find you one way or another. <laughs> uh, that's the cookies on your computer. No, 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 seriously. No. Um, so... <laughs> So we're starting, we're going to start off this episode by tackling the issues of paywalls. Um, it's really important to think about how these barriers really limit our access to vital, well, in our context, trans-related resources and information. Um, we're going to talk about why this is such a big deal. And, well, and as we like to do at TFP, what we can actually do about it instead of just being... Uh, just sitting here idly frustrated at uh, at certain newspapers who throw up those frustrating boxes at us. Um, <laughs> they could subscribe to TFP's newsletter each week and they'll get a great uh, information packet of uh, of good stuff without a paywall. Isn't that cool? Yeah, we have, we we don't have paywalls without here paywall. at TFP. All of our info yeah. is free. I mean, honestly, that's one of our core pillars is that we want our information to be open and accessible to the public in a way that is, you know, comprehensible for the average person, you know, without a lot of that complicated language. Um, it's on a website. You can access it for free, either through our newsletter, either through our website, either through our social media. It's all there for you because we believe this information should be readily accessible and not behind uh capitalist paywalls so yeah, because, yeah that's one of our because like uh, like our, our first point is one of, the, one of the significant barriers of a paywall is it restricts as access to vital information and resources uh research findings and knowledge uh they uh, gets cut off to uh, uh to people uh, except for those who can afford access and uh, and one of the things that I always say is like, uh, we've got all of this misinformation and disinformation that spreads freely. And yet anything that's like accurate and researched and like all of this, like, um, uh, like all of this other valuable information 
is locked up. What do you think is going to start carrying, uh, start getting the weight of the pub, uh, public opinion? Which is going to spread more? Mm. Mm. The information that is easily accessible. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that, I think Barry Walls are interesting because they kind of create this, and this is a definitely a core pillar within the capitalist system that we live in, right? But hiding things behind some sort of barrier or some sort of, you know, paywall, right? So a paywall is literally just a fence um, rooted in classism, um, is that they don't, they, they basically try to say that this information is more valuable. So you have to pay. It's kind of like a toll road, right? Um, in order to in order to pass through, you have to pay um, because this road is really, really important, right? And it's, they try to make it seem like um, this type of information should not be accessible to the public because if you arm the public with knowledge, all of those systems that you've worked so hard to implement things like this that um, reinforce things like ableism and classism and sexism and transphobia and white supremacy, um, people, people are, are, are limited through their worldview with the access um, of information that they have, right? And that's where a lot of ignorance stems from is that a lot of people don't have access to information on purpose, right? And that's why media framing is so, huh, I could go on for hours about media framing, but um, it, it, truly, <laughs> it truly reinforces systems of power and harms a lot of people in a lot of different ways. And I think this conversation I've heard a lot in academia spaces because everyone's like no i'm not going to pay 40 dollars for this this article even though it's written by really cool authors um most of the time if you email the authors and you're like hey i really love your paper can i read it they're just going to send it to you um because they're actually not getting most of the money um they're actually usually not getting any money it's just the publisher getting the money for these articles that they did not write they did not research they did not spend time doing they just looked over it and said we'll put it on our website and charge people 40 dollars to read it so that's bullshit <laughs> <laughs> so no it's I, even I, like that in mental health too yeah. Because yeah. as mental health providers, we're supposed to be getting competency trainings and associations mm -hmm. that we're affiliated with, they make us pay for those courses. I know that some mm -hmm. of them costs range from like 40 to even $80, even getting books, magazines, it's all costing with something. And it's like, this is valuable information. Like we should, it should not be hidden from the public at all. Yeah. yeah. So Noah, what are some of the, um, you know, as far as as like paywalls and, and research and, and access to information, what are some of the ethical concerns with that? And I know as a mental health provider, you, you, you really are very much involved with the ethics of things. Yes, ethics is my middle name. So I think when it comes to the topic of ethics, it gets a little bit challenging because they do have a set of guidelines that we have to follow, but we're also taught to actually bring into our morals too. So finding that balance is very challenging for some, um, but knowing in psychology, there's different titles, you know, so we have PsyDs, PhDs, LMFTs, LPCCs, LCSWs. I mean, there's different titles in every state, but universally they all mean the same. Each one has a board and they do have a section. So I'm actually going to reference some um, 
ethics out of the American Counseling Association, which is the one that I am affiliated with nationally. So essentially the code of ethics, when it comes to research, even just the profession as a whole, um, universally they share the key themes of having autonomy, consent, competency, responsibility slash accountability, humility, and respect. So as mental health professionals, though, we have to remember that it is our responsibility to always respect the people that we see or even do research on. Admitting that we need more education on topics that are challenging and opening our minds and our hearts to gaining perspective from others and dropping that kind of entitled, I know it all attitude, uh, because essentially you're, we're reinforcing those that are suffering. So our I role is- to, uh, uh, I tried to do a fact check on you, Noah, but I, but I was stopped with- I was, getting, I was actually getting ready to mention something with that. That's relative to that. Oh. When it comes to research, I'm, I'm yeah. being a I'm being a brat in chat. Is no, that's okay. On. We love that. <laughs> well, now you know just to just to address some of that. You know, you were talking a minute ago about you know magazines and and access to information. Uh, you know, further along past the the ethical concerns of that and the research. If there's anything more that you'd like to add, um, after what are you know some of the ways that we can advocate for, you know, obtaining access in a way that doesn't cost an arm and a leg. Mm -hmm. um, either way, though, when it comes to research, we still have to take accountability. We still have to mind what we're doing. We have to report them to boards or even with some that are independent contractors are doing independent research. Either way, accountability has got to be established. You have to follow the guidelines that are implemented by federal and state. So that is something that as professionals, we have to be aware of when we're doing research in terms of ethics. So uh, Cecily, um, so um, we mentioned uh, academia a bit before. Um, mm -hmm. So as far as the, the paywalls and academia, uh, how does that, uh, how does that affect uh, advocacy and also Noah, mm -hmm. how does it affect um, like a decision making in advocacy and research itself? Um, Noah, did you want to go first, or I was going to say if you want to go first, I I, okay. I actually <laughs> want to hear your perspective. Yeah, no, um, I I have a lot of really passionate comments about this, so. Uh, so when we think about, so I'll break it down this way. So when we think about a lot of these really, really great scholars, legendary scholars that are doing important work, right? In, in, in the realm of academia in general, right? We think of academia as this institution of research, right? We always think of it as, oh, it's a neutral place. It's not, it's actually often very, very harmful to marginalized identities for various different reasons, specifically folks of color, right? So when you have those systems that impact academia because academia is also reinforcing those systems, right? Because of things like paywalls, because of, right? It's all connected, but we'll, we'll, follow, we'll follow it down. So you have these great scholars that have gone through academia despite how violent it can be for them. You have, you know, great example, Kimberly Crenshaw. You have uh, Brittany Cooper. You have um, Dr. Autumn Blackdeer. You have all of these really great scholars that are doing incredible work. And their research 
is now, um, you know, because they're, they're providing that different perspective of their life experience, they're doing research that brings a completely different perspective. And that's why it's so critical to fund um, minority research and minority papers, but also make sure that research is openly accessible is because their research is um, breaking through a lot of the um, primarily white lenses that a lot of other research is is funneled through um, is that it's also behind the same paywall that all of the other research is behind. So how does that affect advocacy is that when you have these these systems um, publish these pieces even research like that, where the research within the research, where if you take research from people like Kimberly Crenshaw, who coined uh, intersectionality, and you have research from, um, you know, past advocates that have different perspectives, and you compare the two, that convergence of those two pieces of information and those those two subsets of information and those perspectives is where the actual advocacy comes because then you start you start really breaking down of where is the disconnect and what's actually happening here, right? And so these these really strong advocates are decolonizing the way that we think about what is research and why is research and what are the different pieces of information that we should be foci focusing on um, and who are the different groups that are being affected and why are they being affected these way? There's, they're asking these questions that are not often answered enough um, when you don't even have the ability on a ground level to break through into academia to access that information because I truly don't believe you don't need you don't need to go through a four year college to be able to understand research and, and, and academic papers. Um, sometimes you may need to look up a big word here or there, right? But the concept is there. That's why we have summaries. That's why people take their time. That's why people can, you know, converge. That's why people can, you know, there's there's different ways to understand academic research. But the bottom line is that when you limit the 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 pool of people who can access this critical information and the different perspectives that are emerging it not only makes it harder for more folks of color to enter the space because that research isn't getting traction and it hinders the movement but the movement is not able to move forward because we're not getting new answers and we're not finding we're not finding solutions so then what it looks like for us when we look on you know the trans advocacy space right if we if we do this with a trans lens if we're not funding trans researchers to talk about the different ways that the gender binary is harmful to all people the movement itself can't take those steps forward to liberate all of us so a lot of a lot of academia has you know these really really great you know, thought pools and a lot of people are pouring all of this energy and you've got these great minds that are converging. And I think that the disconnect between academia and advocacy is the paywall and that paywall is a critical disconnection that is actively harming the movement because we don't have, we don't have that communication back and forth of, okay, so here's the research now we can apply it here's the information now we can relay it and now we can get this into the hands of people to start changing perspectives to start influencing legislation to start deconstructing different systems but if we're not converging those things 
how are we supposed, but, and, and also I'm not saying that, you know, the movements as a whole are inherently, you know, dependent on academia. I'm saying that that, that facet, that, that pool of where that research, where people are trying to deconstruct a lot of these arguments that have really harmful, false pretenses, such as the gender binary, there's only two sexes, false, we all knew that, but we had to have that research funded so we could say, actually, no, human sex is a spectrum. Um, if we didn't have that, how could we have those conversations now? How could we start progressing the movement in a way that looks better for our society and liberates us from those really harmful ideologies that's really just hurting everyone? So my perspective is that the disconnect there is not only reinforcing you know systems of white supremacy but there's a missed opportunity where people who want to know are not able to and they're they're relying on the ignorance of the average person and they're relying on on the on individual people's inability to access this information to continue those harmful ideologies so the people that are in power can stay in power Absolutely. So that's my, my two cents. I a thousand percent agree with you because I'm very passionate about this topic as well, because essentially at the end of the day, like it also reinforces, you know, these hate groups too, because they're able to say like, hey, you guys aren't really being open about publishing this research. And it's like, how can we actually really openly publish it or even talk about it from our lens when we have the barrier of not being able to access it? I mean, if we're promoting the narrative like, hey, education is important. What is the thing that they talk about when it comes to mental health? Ending the stigma. How do we end a stigma? We share stories and we share information. So how is it, how can we able, how are we able to share this information when there's this barrier that's there? It's actually very contradiction, contradictory and it's also very telling. You know, as we're talking about the consequences of anti-trans legislation. Um, we'd like to hone in on some of the restrictions specifically. And I didn't know if um, you had anything to offer on that, uh, Cecily. Yeah, um, well, so with a lot of the anti-trans legislation this year, one of the main restrictions that I think I want to first off note um, that isn't really something that um, we're going to see concrete numbers on, we're not going to see like, you know, this bill and that bill, is people's peace and freedom um, has been stolen. Um, I think that all this year, this coordinated attack um, has been horrible on so many trans folks, mental health, LGBTQ plus people in general, right, the coordinated attack, but so, so many people have had their peace stolen from them and their happiness stolen from them um, off the basis, right, if we're referencing what we just talked about with the, with the, uh, the paywalls, but really bad information, really inaccurate, harmful, transphobic information, um, disinformation, really, that is not it's not based in science, it's not based in truth, it's based out of hate, and it's based off of ideologies that are on an individual level that are being forced on um, a national level. So that's one of the main things that I wanted to first note. Um, other things that 
can be considered consequences of all of the legislation that has been passed this year, which we're, we're nearly 600. And I, I can't stress this enough whenever I talk about this with folks. I can't stress this enough. 600 is an astronomical number. It should not be that high. I know that a lot of folks, you're not on the hill, you're not, you're not um, advocating, you're, you don't really know how a lot of, you know, Congress works and the bills work and, you know, the average. That is, what is it, more than triple than the last few years combined? It is ridiculous. It is a coordinated attack and it would be ridiculous and silly and harmful to say that it wasn't a coordinated attack. There ha- it's an unprecedented amount of bills, right? So we've had our peace stolen, we've had our happiness stolen. Um, the, the, but on, on a concrete level, when we, when we think about you know, things that are actively being restricted like hormones or access to gender affirming care, whether that be surgeries, whether that be just affirming care where you can talk to your doctors about what a transition or what different procedures um, may look like um, or different things that you may want to do with your body or even just using pronouns with your provider, there have been numerous states that have passed laws that have said providers can't even use pronouns. You can't even, you can't even um, affirm your patient's pronouns. You have to use the pronouns that, you know, legally um, we say that you have to use. Biological right? pronouns. Um, Right. In, 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 air in, in heavy air quotes. <laughs> heavy air quotes. Biological, whatever that means. And I, I guarantee you, you ask a lot of these legislators, tell me what a chromosome is. They're going to fold. They don't know what a chromosome is. They don't know how biology works. When I tell a lot of these people, oh, well, do you actually know how, to, how a fetus develops in the womb and how like organs are developed? how like sex organs and just like your body parts are developed. Did you know that has a lot to do with exposure to hormones and it's not just your chromosomes? Did you know about that? They don't know. They don't know because they don't care. Anyway, um, so another thing is that they do contradict medically accepted best practices and jeopardize the health and rights of trans children. There has been a specific attack on trans children. That should be noted. Most of these bills, I would say, are specifically attacking youth um, and that's, primarily coming from, ding, 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 um, who has voting power? The parents. Who are these constituents trying to appeal to? The parents, right? They're trying to play into their hands, spew this fear, and get their vote, right? It's not really about protecting children because it's never been about the children. Um, If they actually cared about children, they would do pick one of these various things that are harming children today, but they don't want to do anything about that because that hurts their pockets. Um, Legislation in some states as well um, penalizes medical providers offering transition-related care to minors. So there's also, um, you know, when you when you provide so for example in indiana there has been an injunction on um, gender affirming care sb 480 has been injuncted and um you know it, it was a really groundbreaking um injunction and and for those who don't know an injunction just means that um you know a law was passed but 
in uh, you know, and a, and a lawsuit was was filed. So basically, we're challenging this because it's violating human rights. And so uh, the judge issues an injunction to basically pause the effects of what that bill does. So Indiana did pass SB 480, and then the ACLU brought a case to them, and they had this injunction, right? And it specifically targeted minors. Um, and so what is also really, really uh, critical about this is that there's this aiding and abetting that that aiding and abetting language is very, very prevalent in a lot of the legislation where not only are you not allowed to as a healthcare provider, even though you have so much research that backs up, this is the best decision for this individual, this child. Um, you can't even tell them, okay, well, I can give it to you, but you can go to this state to get this care that doctor could be penalized, right? So healthcare providers are now put in this very sticky spot of trying to provide the standard of care that is in the best interest of their patients, right? And and what's really, really um, interesting is that I think a lot of folks are now realizing that this anti-trans legislation, even though it primarily targets trans folks, it's also affecting people that are accessing similar procedures, similar medicines for different reasons, but they can now no longer access it because of this legislation. Um, so those are th those are my thoughts is that there, there are large consequences that are happening. Um, and again, most of these people are not, the, the people, and I mean the legislators are not actually um, uh, drafting up these bills out of you know medical research or really good faith it's really about control and about um pushing an agenda to get their votes and they just chose trans rights this was the year that we're going to um affect everyone and we're going to rip the rug out from so many people like we've seen in texas like we've seen in florida um arkansas attempted in, yeah. in oklahoma like we've seen in a lot of these states I want to add something to the anti-trans legislation, though. See, that's what the thing that I always find, like, almost a little bit amusing, but I know it's very contradictory, is that whole theme of protecting the children. It's like, okay, if you really care about your children, why aren't you going, let's let's use their little talking points, right? They're calling us groomers. Why aren't you going after all the churches? Why aren't you protesting the churches where all these kids are getting harmed? If you really care about the children, why aren't you doing that? In fact, even some of the book bans. I know that there is this one activist, her name is, the, she goes to the kitchen table activist, and she already, she has a website where you can actually have people reporting books that are suspected promoting pornography, which are basically LGBTQIA plus friendly books, or even critical theory is that. And, you know, things like that are what are going to be a contributor to the influence, and might I add, with the youth, there's actually a survey done, and you can actually find this on Axios. Um, it was done earlier this year. They actually found, even with adults, that 94% of trans and non-binary said, after these bills have been in effect, they feel less safe. 80% of us feel, or 80% of trans and non-binary people are actually, because of this, have impacted loved ones, physical and mental health. 
And on top of that, because of this, there's more discrimination and there's more growth to the stigma, which is almost about 90% of trans and non-binary people said they've been experiencing that the worst. Now, they did take some uh, perspectives from other members of the acronym. So overall, like as the LGBTQ, um, 79% feel less safe. About 43% have been impacted by loved ones or the loved ones have been impacted by this and about 80 and a half percent of growth and stigma. So either way, it's getting worse and worse and worse. And essentially, at the end of the day, we need to change the narrative. And, you know, as we know, the, the narrative right now is held by corporate interest. They really don't give a shit about us at the end of the day. Alan, you mentioned something about wanting to play on the court card of getting votes. Yes. That is true. But also they are really reinforcing dangerous behaviors. They're reinforcing people mm-hmm. to not be compassionate anymore. They're reinforcing the fact that nobody can be empathetic anymore. They're reinforcing the mm-hmm. idea that we can't really take accountability. So let's take an example. So you know how like the right wing likes to say, hey, we need law and order. Okay, so when every time it comes to them, it's like, no, I'm going to scream and throw a huge Karen fit. Well, and you realize that, that, that apply to me. one thing that I'm always pointing out is that the hypocrisy is deliberate and yeah. we waste time in trying to call them in, call them out on hypocrisy. It's a waste of time. It's a waste of energy because their hypocrisy is intentional because their rules, the rules that they try to apply to us do not apply to them. Mm. <clears throat> Mm-hmm. It's like definitions don't mean what they really mean anymore. I, I really, th- I mean, this can definitely go into a whole big discussion, but all I'm going to say is I think it kind of started all with COVID because. Sure, it- make a note because uh, make a note for the next episode about this discussion of this. Uh, no, this, uh, th- this has been going on since way before COVID. Uh, this has been uh, like this, this has been brewing for a very long time. Uh, th- uh, but like, 2016, uh, even before, uh, like even before, like 2016 is a natural, is a culmination of decades of this, uh, this behavior. I mean, uh, like as far back as like uh, Reagan, Nixon, and uh, and even a bit further back. Um, well, don't uh, worry. We're going to go through all of that in the next season. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll go through all of that. But like th- this is. This is not new. <laughs> yeah. Well, also to add too, right wingers watch us. They watch watch our behavior because I mean, look at the idea of detransitioning. Some of these bills that were passed, I mean, they're actually proposing the idea of hey, like we can't allow you to do any form of gender affirming care unless you prove that you know you don't have gender dysphoria or you don't have another mental diagnosis so i mean yeah i do think we do need to reserve some of these conversations for another time because i think we could go on and on about it oh, absolutely. Well, that's, uh, we, well we do that's why we have an outline now noah could you get into some of the detrimental effects on mental health um if you i mean you've covered some of it but could you go a little bit more deeper into that for us? I mean, essentially, at the end of the day, what these bills have been doing when it comes to mental health, it's affecting, like you've already said, our youth. Our youth is important. I mean, suicide ideations have gone up. The risk has gone up. However, studies have shown that when you do propose something good and it passes, it changes the mental health. Suicide risk and ideations go down. However, the fact that these facts aren't really talked about that much 
that's really what's making this, uh, creating this effect of basically, I'm going to go and treat these kids like crap, even though I am actually making an argument otherwise. At the end of the day, okay, so I actually know where I was going to go on this. So when it comes to the impacts of mental health and specifics, even with families and with children, is the fact that they all have to find themselves leaving states. It's an adjustment. You know, most of the clients that I see, that's what they really come and see me for. They have moved from other states and moved to California. And essentially, that whole problem is adjusting. Like, I had to leave my own home. You know, that's just stories that I would hear. I'd have to leave my own home and I had to leave all my friends behind. I had to leave everything that I knew behind. And it's creating a lot of anxiety and depression. And as well, it's just, it's impacting their ability to really fully live out their potential because of this dangerous rhetoric as well as the laws being passed. I, I think like adjustment is a little bit like uh, an understatement for what these people are having to go through um, because we're talking about people that are uh, that, uh, that are getting gender affirming care to be who they really are and are facing losing access to it um, are facing de uh, dehumanization harassment, ridicule, uh, bullying, uh, not only from their own government, but also from online targeting and from the uh, possibly even the community. Um, I mean, we've seen what happens when certain accounts uh, decide that a uh, that a that a venue or person or location is worthy of uh, right wing attention. That location starts getting uh, starts getting doxxed, harassed, bomb threats, and whatnot. And so, for a family to have to uproot themselves and go to another state is um, is a lot more. It's it's traumatic, right? And and uh, we're, and also we're we're looking. There's been numerous articles over the past year, and um, with my work with uh, Equality New York, we're uh, I'm looking at uh, draft uh, at like uh, drafting some uh, some some cam uh, some advocacy campaigning around this is like um, it's having it's it's also having a chilling effect on even safe haven states because even safe haven states where healthcare is protected and doctors are protected and parents are protected and gender affirming care is guaranteed. Um, doctors are still nervous because of the federal environment, because of um, people, people are unsure as to how well the protections will hold um, because of the harassment that is still happening that state governments may not be able to protect them from like uh, these online social media accounts. Um, there's also the, like the funding, the, the, the wait periods and all these other aspects of, how, of once you get to a state, what do you do then? Um, 
how do you get access to this care? Uh, how many people are like and just waiting? All in addition to all of the the, the uh, all of the stressors of moving, you have to also have to establish yourself in uh, in care in this already overstressed, overtaxed, underfunded, under uh, just under resourced envi- uh, healthcare environment. So, I'm oh, sorry. <laughs> no, go ahead. I was going to say, just to clarify, like, I mean, I do understand that because it is traumatic. It is. I mean, I mean, if we really want to get into it, I mean, I would argue the whole DSM-5 is surrounded by trauma. Like trauma has some impact on our lives one way or another. Essentially, um, when it comes to adjustment, I was speaking more in clinical terms, how that is actually talked about clinically behind closed mm-hmm. doors. They do call it an adjustment. And I do agree with that that is an understatement just because of the fact is we are we're dealing with the double stigma that's placed on us right i appreciate that yeah so i mean <laughs> essentially at the end of the day though it is very traumatic especially if it's on a child mm-hmm. i mean again and the fact is too there are resources that are there but the problem again it goes with there's nobody able to get access to it because it's not being made aware yeah and um I want to call back to something that Carolyn mentioned or uh, Cecily mentioned um, when he was mentioning uh, talking about stealing our happiness. And mm. when you first bring it up and to anybody listening, it might sound like this nebulous as- abstract concept. So, <laughs> uh, so I'm going to kind of talk about it from a personal perspective not to try and garner sympathy or anything or to bellyache, but the fact that um, I, uh, uh, I have given up my, I've given up many personal goals over these this past year and a half, two years. Um, I've stopped my, my personal development, my, my personal st- uh, kind of like video game streaming. Um, most of my, Kind of uh, my most of my personal like my entertainment video game play has come to a halt. Um, I've put my uh, I've put my desire to uh, go to school for image uh, for graphic design on hold. Um, I used to I used to be a progression World of Warcraft raider, and that has been put on hold. Um, I might. Uh, I, I I have uh, I have been able to reclaim time this year to participate in National Novel Writers Month, and it does look like I'm going to be able to get that done. But um, so I I am able to I've been able to reclaim a couple of little bits of happiness, but the <clears throat> amount of the amount of happiness and amount of joy that the that this that this fight has taken from me is significant mm. and it's and i'm in a relatively uh, uh well off i'm in a relative uh, i'm in a quite privileged position i mm. know uh, i am friends with and i know firsthand many people who are less privileged than i who have lost more who stand to lose more and my heart breaks for them I want to I want to dig into I want to dig into that just a little bit and also call back your references to the national threat right um, 
I think, I think when we think about happiness, right, we think, oh, like, are you, you know, going on vacations every month and stuff? No, the, the, the happiness is, is, it's fundamentally shifted. When you have various marginalized identities, the effect that oppression has um, just in your everyday life is profound, like, like Tabby was saying, right? So it's not just that, you know, a lot of people are, are feeling sad and they're not able to do the things that they want to do. It's that they actually legitimately can no longer do those things. Like they are not able to go out in public spaces without being harassed by this local group that has nothing else better to do, but then to harass people who are trying to have a good time and not bothering anyone else, right? Who are just trying to find joy in life and live this life, right? Life is short and we're trying to, we're trying to do the best that we can with the life that we have. We're trying to be grateful every day, but we, but it is hard. It is hard to, and, and, and Noah, you may, you definitely know more about this, but like the psychology behind um, fear and hope not being able to be activated at the same time. Like you cannot feel hope if you are actively in a state of fear and you cannot, your, your, your fear is not activated if you are feeling a lot of hope. And so psychologically how that works um, from what I understand, Noah's the authority on this one is that they are, they are actively targeting our hope by just pa- just just proposing bill after bill after bill after bill, seeing what can get passed. And this is, so this is the tactic, right? Is that they have these copycat bills. And if you look at lo- a lot of them, I'm I'm not kidding y'all. When you go online and you look at these bills, they're copied and pasted. Okay, they're I they're have all read these all six hundred of them. They are yeah. Like, ta- I've literally read all of them. They're exhausting. And, they're exhausting and, and some of them are like vile just just why would you ever talk about a human this way but they're copied and pasted and so what they did was they used the same playbook that they have been trying to do with Dobbs to get abortion um overturned right to get Dobbs overturned so now abortion is now elite, illegal in a lot of states um and we'll I, we'll talk about this later in um when we talk about Virginia but um is they pass horrendous level uh, things at the local level at the state level and then they push it farther and farther to get to the Supreme Court to get that national ban. And so the reference to the to the national that I was talking about before was that um, what what they're trying to do, and they've already been very open about this, is that they want to ban gender affirming care on a national level. And and I don't think people under understand truly what that actually means, is that these safe haven sp- states are no longer safe. The U.S. in general is no longer safe at all, right? And, and a lot of people are not feeling safe in general. They're like, okay, like, is my state going to be next? What am I going to do? Should I stockpile? Like, what do, what do I say? You know, should I, you know, what should I do? All of these spaces that you know, you know to be home and how unfair it is to be forced out of your home um, simply because people are not minding their business. Um <laughs> Truly, if we if we want to get into it in that way, but but you know, states like New York that have worked so hard, the advocates in New York have worked so hard to make state New York State safer, 
And they have openly said, we're going to ban it across the whole country. We don't care. We don't care. So what that actually means is not only are you not going to be able to access care, but that also means it's criminalized. And what can you not do if you've been part of the, if you've been incarcerated, you can't vote. All of your, all of your rights are stripped to, to, uh, to, slavery levels, if we're going to be honest, because guess what? The 14th Amendment says that um, you can no longer, it's basically illegal for um, the U.S. to have slaves unless you've been incarcerated. But guess what? We have slavery in our U.S. prison systems, but that's that's a whole other different conversation. Um, You you can't vote. Yeah, it's, (sighs) but that also means that funding, so Planned Parenthood, Medicaid, Medicare, like those national healthcare institutions that are funded by the government are no longer going to be able to provide gender affirming care. So the impacts of that are not just going to be, well, I can access care. It means that if I can access it, it might not be funded. And so that is also a different layer about why it is so important that we we talk about the effects is that the mental health aspect is detrimental but the long-term effects of disrupting someone's medical care um and and imposing these national bans without actually having substantial um information as to why this needs to be passed is detrimental not just for trans folks but to everyone because if they do it to trans folks, they're gonna do it to everybody else. Yep. And Absolutely. I digress there. I've been running for Congress since 2019. This is my third time running. When I ran in 2019, I said to all of my constituents, I said, you know what? This has been the worst year in modern history for anti-LGBTQIA legislation. You know what? In 2020, I said the same thing. This has been the worst year in modern history for anti-LGBTQIA legislation. I said the same thing in 2022. And now here we are in 2023 with over half a thousand anti-LGBTQIA QIA bills, with more than half of those specifically targeting trans people. And yet there has never been a trans person federally elected to the United States of America. And for me, that is, it's BS. I'm not here for that because it says a good friend of mine says, if you're not at the table, you are on the menu. LGBTQIA people, trans people are on the menu right now. So everybody that is here who says you're an ally, please be an ally and help actually get trans people get elected because we deserve a voice in our government. Now that we're back from that we're here with our special guest, special appearance by the one and only, maybe, maybe a girl, all the way from the LA County Silver Lake District, right? Is that right? Or did I, I don't know. Yeah, that's, yeah, pretty, it's pretty close. Good enough. Um, I am, uh, I represent, uh, I'm the at-large representative and treasurer for the Silver Lake Neighborhood Council, which is a part of the LA City Municipal Government. Now you're here with us to celebrate the um, trans- Awareness Week. And yes. with that, we're going to step into um, talking about that actually, um, the, the awareness that has come up with our community, the more that we spread our voices, and the more that we talk about this, and the more we post, and the more we educate, 
the more that 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 we notice that, that this transphobia that's being pushed by the alt right and and you know i guess bigotry i don't you know the more that we see awareness coming about the more we see this failing transphobia uh prosper in the world so with that cecily since you take us down where we see transphobia failing in the media and in education and science and all of that good stuff sorry yeah yeah no i i would be happy to provide the happy news or the good news um we're just going to highlight some instances where transphobia is just being actively challenged and debunked you know um it's it may be slow but we do need the reminders that progress is happening and you know the movement is moving so some good news um on the education and just overall awareness is that organizations um, and platforms are dedicated to educating the public about trans, non-binary, and gender-conforming identities in general. I think we can all agree that that is becoming something that, um, at least personally, I am seeing a lot more um, highlights of trans experiences coming across feeds and also the protections uh, you know sometimes there is a little bit of censorship i would say tiktok is one of the platforms where there's a lot of censorship happening puff, but YouTube, um overall huh puff, youtube cough <laughs> youtube youtube is probably one of the worst offenders actually um i was trying to I was just seeing, I was like, can I find the Transformation Project uh, stream, you know, just looking it up, um, just like putting it in the search bar on YouTube without having logged into an account and already subscribed, it was not popping up. I was, you know, typing in a whole bunch of different co uh, combinations of things and just non-relevant things were popping up. Um, and sometimes it would say that there was no search results. So it was really, really frustrating. Um, but anyway, um, but that being said, organizations like, uh, like brands, like companies, I'm seeing a lot more uh, trans representation, which is really, really nice. Um, we can all agree that representation um, in media, in fashion, just, you know, in the public eye is really critical in fostering um, in fostering a sense of community and a sense of unity with all people, right? So people want to see other people that look like them in the media to feel connected, um, but also to feel represented. Um, and representation is important for many, many different things, but that's, that's definitely something I'm seeing. Um, and preventing transphobia is hard, but when we start combining, you know, different advocates who are open about their experiences, providing different resources. Um, and, you know, we're debunking as well as accurately representing them in media, in TV shows, in movies, in ads, in, you know, and having them even just like physically in stores being open and out, you know, th that representation is going to be really, really critical in breaking down a lot of those um, stigmas so that's maybe it's so good to have you here thanks for being here with us really glad to have you join us here this evening or this this wonderful wednesday afternoon on the trans narrative for now civic report and we'll have a new name next year but nobody nobody knows that yet 
what they do. But, um, so as we go along and we see, um, you know, trans advocacy being up in the forefront as we have these conversations, what are some of the challenges legally that you're seeing in the legislature, at least in your in your uh, facet of of public office? What are some of the challenges that you're seeing and some of the things that you're seeing that are overcoming those challenges and barriers? Thank you so much, Caroline. Great question. Um, so for me, it's it's interesting because I feel as if on the one hand, I've been really excited to see so much talk about um, trans identities, about queer identities in general. Um, I've been really excited to see a lot of, um, you know, trans flags everywhere and non-binary flags and, you know, the progressive pride flags. Um, I actually, uh, a couple of weeks ago, I participated in a, uh, a, a beauty panel and um, a part of what we discussed was, was how brands can can help promote the LGBTQIA cause. And more specifically, as it pertains to why I was there, you know, trans issues. And, you know, one of the things that I, I had to say at that discussion was that, A, I was very excited and I am very excited to see trans kind of everywhere. And it, it sort of, to me, impounds the idea to folks that we are here, we exist, we have always existed, we are going to continue to exist. But at the same time, I kind of feel like a market. And I, I say that in the sense of, um, you know, one of the things that I mentioned when we were discussing brands and how they can promote uh, trans inclusion and queer inclusion in general, one of the things that I said is I don't like just being a thought when it's pride season and you know we see this happening year after year where you know corporations are um using you know pride flags and um and whatnot to promote their brands and 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 specifically their products rainbow and capitalism so, and so i'm i'm conflicted on it because on the one hand i like that we were talking about hey Trans people are people, and we are, unfortunately, in this system of capitalism, consumers. So I do appreciate having us as a thought, but I also don't like being used as a way to sell products. And so one of the things that I, when they asked, how can brands be supportive of queer people, consider us year round. Don't consider <clears throat> us just during the month of June or during the summer when pride is trendy and popular. You know, if you're going to really consider trans people and queer people to be your consumers and you're going to try to convince us to buy your products, make sure that you are promoting us as human beings year round and yeah, not just when it's convenient. It, it, and on, on top of that, when you do stand by somebody that is trans in your advertisement campaign if the media or if the public has you know an outrage and starts shooting your product out in a field and gets mad and says f you to the public for it maybe stand by that that artist stand by that content creator and like defend them and defend your choice in uh, participating because like as as the person that was victimized in this this uh, advertising that we've seen with our community um, it's far better if you just don't work with us instead of working with us and then abandoning us when the public has backlash because your support for us is going 
to shift the public opinion if you stick with it. Because if they see, if the public sees a backlash and then they see this company stand up, that's going to pull the people that are already, you know, supportive together. And that's going to stand up to the people that are like, well, we don't like this. And it's like, well, you'll see the shift change when companies and corporations normalize it and just say, Hey, what are you doing? Why are you, and actually call it out. You know, if, 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 and we know what we're talking about, if Bud Light had said something and they'd been like, Hey, we stand by this creator. They're just a human being. They like beer, like all of us. It's okay. And we recognize that change things change, but you know, our beer stays the same. And, and, and if you'd like to get more piss water then you know, just support who we bring on type of thing. I don't like Bud Light. I, I could not agree with you more because uh, sort of the, the sum of that feeling is that I don't want you to promote me only until it affects your bottom line. You either support me or you don't. And you don't just get to decide, well, this isn't playing well in the market. So we're going to move away from, you know, trans ads and whatnot. That just goes to show that we are just props in this corporate capitalist system. And that's not where I want to be. I will say again, like it is, it is nice to finally see trans people being considered in these brand promotions. But again, I don't want to be a prop in your company's profit margins. And if it's contingent upon that, then it's not real allyship. And that's what I have been disappointed to see is that all of these agencies, all of these corporations, these big brands that we know, they're so excited to promote Pride Month and the progressive flag and trans people until it affects their bottom line. And then when they stop, then it, it just goes to show that you're not actually supporting us. You're only supporting us because we're helping to uh, raise your profits. And again, mm-hmm. that's just real allyship. I actually had the great opportunity to meet Dylan Mulvaney a couple of weeks ago. Uh, she was the keynote speaker oh. at the yeah, it was amazing. And I wasn't oh fully expecting it, but uh, I was asked to do Drag Queen Story Hour at uh, the LGBTQ, the LGBT Center of Los Angeles. They hold an annual event called Models of Pride, and it's specifically geared towards um, queer youth. And they basically try to bring in folks that are, you know, I'm kind of a queer elder at this point, <laughs> and they bring in folks to try to, you know, just support the younger generation of, of queer people. And to me, that's so important because when I was growing up, um, we weren't even talking about LGBTQIA issues on such a public level. But I, I can only imagine what it's like to be an LGBTQIA youth in this day and age when they're in 2023, when there's been more than 600 anti-LGBTQIA bills moving through the United States. I can't imagine how terrifying that must be to be a, a queer youth. So anyways, I'm digressing a bit. But when I got to meet Dylan, <clears throat> she was, first of all, just as charming and wonderful as she is online so to see her in person she was just just a ball of beautiful energy and um it was just really exciting to see her and to see the impact that she had on every queer youth in that in that audience they were screaming for her and 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 the thing about that is like she provides a a bit of hope for, I think, a younger queer audience. And for Bud Light to sort of just ditch her after it was not really serving their branding, I think it just goes to show what corporations are really all about. 
And not to bring it back to me, but my campaign, that's a part of the reason why I'm totally corporate free. I don't want to have that influence of corporations saying we will support you and your issues until it affects our brand. And that's not what that's not what life is about. That's not what uh, the American dream is about. You know, I think we all want to just be dignified human beings in this society. And it shouldn't be contingent upon um, how how you're serving the profit model of a corporation. So I really feel bad for for Dylan in the sense of how she was treated by that corporation. And I think Bud Light really suffered the most because they really riled up their far right base to not want to support them because they're supporting a trans person. And then they also really upset the um you know, the more left based, the the queer community, because they sort of turned their back on her once it didn't serve as a, a profitable endeavor. So. They really upset everybody. Yeah. 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 I think the the I think the the corporate flip flopping, um, I think something that's also really frustrating is, you know, that that the, the rainbow washing that happens, you know, June 1st, everybody's uh, logo is automatically a rainbow or a gradient of some sort, right? And it's like they make everything rainbow for that whole month. They get their thing for Capital Pride or whatever. And then the rest of the month, the rest of the year, they are actively funding things that, you know, harm us. And that I think is is one of the the biggest stingers um, for me when it comes to to the corporate um, the corporate washing. But a place I think where I've seen and this is us, you know, transitioning a little bit here to um, the healthcare realm. I know that we talked a little bit about um, in earlier in the episode how um, healthcare providers, specifically during this year, um, but also in the previous years, how they've been affected with all of these laws, some of them aiding and abetting, you know, all of the complications and all of the struggles and also the GOP blatantly stating, we want to ban uh, gender affirming care on a national level to threaten all of the safe haven space uh, states um, is that there are and there is a movement of, of healthcare professionals that are actively trying to push back against this um, and provide care in in the ways that they can, right? So whether that be in a mobile free clinic or it's, you know, a smaller clinic and that clinic is, you know, providing a sliding scale for gender affirming care or, you know, they're actively going out and they're getting trained. They're trying to figure out, okay, well, I'm in a state where, you know, gender affirming care is still legal. Let me try and figure out what are my patient's needs. Maybe there's a gap in my education that I'm missing where I should be learning more about this because there is a lot of, you know, medical information, clinical information that is pertinent to a lot of my patient's health. And in order to provide the standard of care, I need to keep up to date with that, right? I'm going to go, I'm going to get those CMEs. I'm going to make sure that I'm staying up to date and I'm providing good care for my patients. So there is a movement of healthcare professionals who have started to, um, you know, go to more trainings and start to be more educated and start asking questions, um, and open up their clinics to, you know, uh, provide gender affirming care or even, you know, provide those referrals, right? Um, there there are a lot of different groups um, and, and they 
they are also really helpful in combating transphobia from a clinical perspective, right? Um, when you have healthcare providers who have gone through, you know, they, they have their PhDs, they, you know, they, they are part of the, the national, um, you know, healthcare groups, and they have all of these accolades, and they're going out and they're using their platform to educate people on the science of it, on, you know, the clinical side of it, you know, sex is not binary, it is a spectrum, this is actually how a fetus is developed. This is actually what's happening. This is why your your hate is fueled on disinformation that is so impactful. So that is a, a space where it provides me a lot of joy um, to see healthcare providers. And this is and this is coming from someone who has been very adjacent to the healthcare realm where I've I've been in the clinical setting. I've been working with a lot of doctors. I've been, you know, and 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 I've seen this happen um, where there are thousands and thousands and thousands of, of, of providers, of nurses um, that are out there that are actively trying to fight in the ways that they can. So that's, you know, a, a nice little glimmer of, of goodness, of hope um, from the clinical perspective is that, you know, if, if doctors are anything, they are of science. And if the science, if, if, if this is the science, they're going to say it. And the science is um, affirming what we have been saying all along is that sex is not binary and you can't um, make laws based off of a binary um, sex system because it is simply untrue. And not only is it untrue, it is very, very harmful to everyone. So um, does anyone else want to Cecily, I, actually I know I, to... I have a lot of passion about that, but no, <laughs> go for it. Speak. I actually, I wanted to ask you a follow-up question based off of what we were just talking about. And please also Tabby or Caroline, feel free to chime in on this also. Um, I have this sort of conflict of um, where I don't like corporate brands using trans representation to promote their brand and promote their profits. But at the same time, I do feel like there is at least some sort of um, passive benefit for queer and trans people in terms of mm. the just recognition that we are human beings. I, I hate saying we are consumers, but this idea that we are also people, we are also, um, you know, folks that deserve attention. Um, do you think that healthcare, um, because for me, I'm a I'm a totally universal healthcare candidate advocate. I think that the fact that we don't have universal healthcare is a crime against humanity in the United States of America. We are the wealthiest nation on earth in history, and the fact that folks are saying, "Well, we can't afford to give everybody healthcare," I am curious to know if you think that um, because we are still on this. Um, system of healthcare where you have to buy insurance or you have to pay out of pockets. Do you think that that plays any role in the healthcare industry sort of paying more attention to us? Um, mm. Does that make sense? I've, I've, I've always kind of wondered that are, are mm. is the healthcare industry suddenly more interested in us because we are being more vocal about it or because they consider us to be consumers of their product? That's a that's a really I think that's a really really good question that I haven't heard, um, but I have, I have had like, adjacent thoughts about it. Yeah, and that sounds like it kind Go of ahead. plays ahead, into Tom. a little bit into that uh, right wing talking point of 
make turning us into like lifelong patients or making profit off of us. And that is, uh, and that is a talking point that has been repeatedly debunked because when you successfully treat a gender, uh, when you succeed successfully treat a person with gender affirming care, they actually require less follow-up care because their depression uh, is uh, their the amount of depression is reduced. It doesn't always go away because I mean, look at the world. Who's I mean, who's does? But um, but uh, a lot of uh, but like a large number of their uh, a lot uh, a large a large number of their other problems become manageable, and also like. The base, the 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 fundamental staples of gender affirming care, things like uh, like HRT is dirt cheap. They are not making money off of estrogen, progesterone, and T, right? And they are making so much more money off of other uh, off of cis people getting uh, like getting their ED treatments. Which are which, by the way, is also gender affirming care. Hair transplants for bald men, balding men is also gender affirming care. Uh, and uh, like all these other things, like there's so Ooh. many. Uh, if, if, uh, the medicalization, uh, the profit medicalization argument just completely falls apart when you apply the actual cost of these dirt cheap hormones and like the 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 reduced need for continuing treatment once you've once the once the uh, once the person starts transitioning and is able to be their true self mm. no i, I appreciate that i also i hope i didn't come off as trying to promote oh no not at all not at all it just um, for me, I'm very skeptical of um, of corporate endeavors, and uh, I think that is something to you know to be critically skeptical about. Um, but you do make a great point that one of the things that right wing folks are really promoting right now is the fact that this idea that um, schools and hospitals and medical organizations are trying to trans people. And it's so absurd because uh, that's absolutely not happening. And, you know, but for me, I guess my question was more of um, my question is where their loyalty actually lies yeah. and whether or not it's a true allyship versus, oh, you know what? This kind of goes with our profit model I, rather I, than, yeah. you know, keeping I, us on as lifelong patients. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say this real quick and then hand it off to Cecily. Um, yeah. <laughs> Um, I, I could like to to get uh, to get to your point. I think the fact that we are not seeing more medical investment and research into trans affirming care is a kind of a testament to the fact that it is not as profitable as the right wing claims it is. Mm. Mm. Because that, yeah. Because like, look at look at how much they invest into ED treatments and hair transplants and uh, and allergies and other things that are incredibly profitable. And look how much they are investing into trans affirming care. Mm. It's, it's a huge difference. 
that's really that's really interesting because I think I think the question itself of why do they care at all? Because I think I think part of part of why that question really intrigued me was knowing knowing the system of healthcare and how that institution functions. They could very easily, you know, big pharma especially, they're really good at this. They could very, very easily steer their um, their priorities um, and and not have any any sort of investment, any sort of accommodation, and you know, pull a lot of research to back up why they are not, you know. And so it's kind of like, yes, uh, I think that. Part of it is that they don't want to lose that very marginal, um, that very marginal profit because the medical institution of the United States is a business. It is a business. It functions as a business. We we function under capitalism. It's all a business. Um, colleges are a business. Healthcare is a business. Um, so I think there is a, a a motivation there, but I also think. I think what at least I've I've seen and what I've heard from healthcare providers is that they went to school and they took an oath to care for humanity, care for people, right? And they have I've I've met some of the most passionate healthcare providers, you know, from you know, and some of these people have been practicing for 30 years. I've interviewed, you know, providers in New Zealand and Australia and, you know, different countries in Africa. Um in in oh gosh, where where was she from? I think she was from Nigeria and she was in South Africa at the time. But there, you know, just different different internationally and also domestically of what they all say is that we went into this field because we care about people and we care about humanity and we want to help heal people and we want to provide care. And so I think that there is a lot of motivation from the medical community, right? Because mm -hmm. again, they are driven by science where they are, they now that there is substantial research and information science hard facts where they have they've done the trials they've seen the research they've seen the psychology they can see it and they're like this is undeniable we cannot deny this any longer this is now the standard of care and as a responsible doctor as a responsible nurse as a responsible you know clinician i'm going to provide the standard of care now not all doctors believe this not all, uh, you know, clinics or even hospitals, um, hospital systems believe this. But for example, um, Swedish hospital system, you might be familiar with them um, on the West Coast. They recently did a merger with uh, Providence. Now, Providence, if you don't know, Providence is very religious. Um, it is a uh, religiously funded um, hospital chain and they have a few locations on the east coast they recently did a merger now swedish hospital system is very progressive um, they had all of their doctors their providers um, go through trainings they had little pronoun pins um, to try and be more accommodating providing gender affirming care um, but providence is obviously very opposite um, they are Protestant, I believe, um, and they did not provide any of those services. But for some reason, somehow they did a merger and 
they they all regardless of who those doctors was were they believed truly um because i did some dei work through their merger they truly believed like regardless we want to provide accurate care we want to provide good care for our patients because we care about humanity and i i know that there's probably a lot of financial financial ties and a lot of financial investments that even I don't know about. But what I know is that from where I'm sitting and, and from the perspectives that I'm hearing through large movements like this, like a like hospital mergers, which are incredibly large and complicated, is that the common theme is that healthcare providers want to provide good standard of care for their patients and save patient lives because that's what they signed up to do. So that's my thoughts. I, I do believe, uh, yeah, and I, I, I do believe that wholeheartedly. And I think that's why we are getting the level of care that we do have access to. That's why I think that like, um, like, insurance like insurance companies like uh, like won't drop us entirely like with the uh being under fire as they are from the from the white from the right wing um and like with my with my earlier statement of um that was primarily targeted at like the um at the insurance companies more than the medical providers themselves uh so like uh just uh to to be to be clear on that one like uh, I, I like the like the insurance companies aren't doing more about like a, like funding research or like expanding coverage or anything like that because of the because it's just not as profitable as people as certain people claim it is. May I may I share something kind of scary with both of you or all three Absolutely. of you? Um, sure. So I actually I haven't really had uh, the space to talk about this much, but um, so uh, I'm running for Congress in California's 30th congressional district. Uh, as I, I mentioned earlier, it's an open seat this year. And so there's a lot of people that are running who may normally never run because you know, there's an incumbent that they have to run against. You tend to see a lot more people run in an open seat. I'm running against somebody who is a Republican. And in my mind, he's probably the front runner for um, the Republican Party in my district. And he is gay and he is totally anti-trans and he's a doctor with his own practice. And what's really messed up um, is that <clears throat> the only reason I've really been sort of <clears throat> in conversation with him or sort of paying attention to him is because on multiple occasions, he has intentionally dead named me, misgendered me, <clears throat> and used that in the promotion of his, um, you know, trying to run for Congress. And it's really, really messed up. And it's really just sad that here's another person who is technically a part of the LGBTQIA plus community who probably only considers themselves to be the LGB community, if you will. Yep. And <clears throat> it's just really terrifying and, and sad and scary that, you know, I, I didn't really have many, um, voices of opposition to me running, at least not vocally or publicly until this dude decided to run. And it's just, it's, it sucks being the, uh, 
it sucks being spoken about when I'm not even in the room. And, you know, he has put out videos deadnaming me, misgendering me. Uh, about a month ago, I was out in West Hollywood. West Hollywood's a part of my um, congressional district. And I was um, with a friend and I had stepped out for a moment to check my phone. And I saw that my opponent was going live on Instagram. I follow him just as sort of like a hate follow. You know, you got to stay, stay, you know, abreast of what the opponents are saying. And I saw that he was going live. And so I tuned into his live and he actually was at a bar in West Hollywood, just about a block and a half down. And the moment that I logged onto his Instagram live, he was talking to a group of log cabin Republicans about why he's running and about why he's running to keep somebody like me, who is a trans person, who is a drag performer out of the sphere of politics. And once again, dead named me, misgendered me. And to me, first of all, it's pathetic because if you can't run on your own merit without bringing down other candidates, you have no you have no business running. But at the same time, it's alarming knowing that this person is a doctor with his own medical profession who is espousing these things on social media while he is campaigning. And so it does it does make me second guess the Hippocratic Oath that medical professionals take. And while I, I do believe that there are so many folks who are very sincere about it, I also have very well reason to believe that there are so many who who don't. And that's sort of a scary thing to, to consider. You want to that... know something scarier? Please. There are a number of medical professionals that go into specifically trans healthcare in order to restrict trans people from getting health care. Yes, yes. And so that that is the group of people that, so it's interesting that you kind of talk about, there is a very specific, there's a very specific flavor, okay, of that combination, that combination right there. And you'll notice, you'll notice, it's the, sa it's the same tactics every single time, right? Because I also believe if you can't run on your own merit of why you would be a good candidate and you ha basically have to position yourself as I'm not that candidate and you only focus on ad hominem attacks about hmm. this person is bad, look at this person, blah, 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 blah you're probably not the best candidate that needs to be out there at the moment. But I digress, right? A apart from that, there's a very specific of flavor of, of providers that I've noticed that may have one or more marginalized identities, but they're still transphobic. Why is that? Why is that? You're like, okay, like why? You're, you're literally gay. Why are you transphobic? Or, you know, you're, you're an immigrant. Why are you transphobic? You experience a lot of the same effects of these oppressive systems in the US that we all experience and that specifically trans folks have been experiencing tenfold. And as someone who, I'm not a, a doctor, right, but have, listened to both very, very open and affirming doctors, but also very transphobic doctors. The transphobia is is rooted in one, their their sense of self. So a lot of times they're transphobic because of stuff that they need to work on. It's not because they have a ton of medical knowledge because yes, you may be a doctor, you may have your own practice, you may have all of this knowledge, but please explain to me why 
the majority of doctors who see this data go, yeah, yeah, this makes sense. This is proven. This is, this is very clear clinical knowledge, but you for some reason say, mm, I don't, I don't, uh, I don't know. I think that all of the research that all of these other people have done, um, I'm just not going to believe. And when you ask them about it, they're going to pull up the same three, um, they're going to pull up the same three, well, this and this and this and this, and also religious region reasons, right? And so that's a whole separate thing about why uh, religion should not be part of politics, but that's a whole separate thing, is that there's a very specific flavor of Republican and doctor where they're going to try and use either fake um, experts um, to further their cause. We've seen that in a whole bunch of other cases that have been brought around the country where they're like, okay, we're going to use this fake expert and then that expert is debunked or we're going to use this doctor, but this doctor isn't actually um, licensed or they lost their license. Um, and Or two, you know, they are themselves gay, but they're transphobic and you're like, why? And it's, and it's rooted in their own sense of self and it's their own insecurities. And that's why they're projecting all of that hate onto you. And so uh, in, a, in a sense, you can't really justify it and you can't really quantify it. You can't really make reason of it. There's no, there's no logic of it. And that's the whole point is that the, the point is, is that they see a freedom in you that they don't have themselves. They see a happiness and a joy in you and that they don't have in themselves. Um, and so they're going to do whatever they can to prevent that. Um, and, and it's really, it's really, it's really frustrating because the Republicans are going to, they're going to latch onto that. They're like, oh, you're a doctor and you're transphobic. So what I'm what I'm believing must be right. But they're not going to believe the non-transphobic doctor and the groups of non-transphobic doctors and all of these medical academies that are putting out statements about why you shouldn't be transphobic in the medical arena. Um, they're just going to listen to this one person because of confirmation bias, because that makes them feel better about themselves. So it's and I also want to say it's really horrible that you have to go through that um, and that you have an opponent who is so avidly anti you because you just seem like this beautiful person who is so passionate about the people and so passionate about what you do. And it, it is really, it just really breaks my heart to know that someone out there is focusing their campaign on making you feel like, making you feel like crap and making you feel like yeah. you shouldn't belong. I appreciate that. Is he's he's um the really interesting thing about this candidate, who I'm not even going to name because I don't want to give him any sort of promotion, is about a year ago, uh, I received an email from him when he was starting to start the process of of running for Congress this this election cycle, and we received my campaign email received an email from him saying, uh, "Hey, I just wanted to reach out. My name is fill in the blank." And uh, I'm having trouble figuring out how to set up a bank account so that it's okay with the FVC and et cetera, et cetera. Do you have any advice? I responded to him and I said, hey, congratulations on your decision to run. Um, it's pretty simple. Do this, this, and this. Um, I hope that our campaigns can remain friendly and civil. Best of luck in your race. It was very cordial, very friendly. And he responded saying, oh, yeah, that sounds, you know, thank you so much. You're actually the only other candidate that responded. Mind you, there's 21 people r running in this race. 
And I was the mm-hmm. only one that responded to him actually giving him advice. And then he immediately turns on me and starts putting out these videos against me. It was just ridiculous. And to me, it's very much giving assimilation gay, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. Mm-hmm. Where I'm not like these people, I'm just like mm-hmm. everyone else. And it to me, it's just, it's it's sad to me. It's very sad to me. Mm-hmm. Well, what, it, it what? reminds me of the same, oop, sorry. No, I was I was just gonna say, you know, one of the ways that that you know we're we're ever gonna combat this alt right attack and coordinated attempt is to get progressive people in places of power and or also just mm. dismantle the entire system and redact. Um but also besides that, if that's not an option at the time, um we can use our power in local government to affect change and Speaking of that, maybe this week, past week, has been a really big shift in the legislature mm. across the country. And I thought that maybe you could take us through some victories in the legislature. Absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, we we hear we've been hearing a lot about, um, you know, the bad things that have been happening to trans people. But I don't think that we talk enough about queer joy and the great things that are happening for queer people, for trans people. And, uh, you know, we were moving heavily into election season. This is just the beginning of election season. And for me, it is so uplifting to see transphobia fail in the idea of politics and as a, a as a motivator to votes. Um, I think that a lot of politicians, um, even some presidential politicians like Ron DeSantis, are really relying on anti-LGBTQIA policies to uplift themselves as candidates. And I think they are very clearly starting to realize that that is not the way to go and it is not serving them. And I hope that these continued failures that we're seeing in legislatures when it comes to electing anti-LGBTQIA candidates, I hope it sends a message to potential candidates and current candidates who are going to try to use us as the scapegoats for modern society's failures in order to get elected. And we are not the reason that modern society is failing in in many regards. Um, In fact, we are the folks who are clamoring for economic justice and for policies that are supporting all marginalized communities, not just the LGBTQIA community. Um, So, you know, Just recently, you know, we saw a historic election in Virginia, Uh, November 2023. Danica Rome was elected to Virginia State Senate, becoming the first openly transgender state senator in Virginia and the second in the nation. This is incredible. Um, It is baby steps that we are seeing, but they are very significant baby steps, you know. 20 years ago, the idea of having a transgender representative, I think, unfortunately, would have been laughable to many people. It wasn't even on people's tongues to be discussing this idea. But what we're seeing is we are actually seeing queer people, trans people run for office, and we're seeing them win. And we're seeing them win, not just because they are queer or trans, we're seeing them win because they have they have intersectional policies that speak to a large number of voters. They, you know, when I talk about my own policies, I talk about the fact that healthcare justice is queer justice. 
housing justice is queer justice. Education justice is queer justice. Racial justice is queer justice. And you can move that all around. It's all intersectional. And that is something that a lot of people relate to, even if you are not a queer person. And so the idea of running on an anti-queer platform, uh, frankly, I think is a stupid idea. And we're actually seeing the results of that live in the results of these elections that are just beginning this election season. Now that underscores like what I what I've been saying, like and what Semi and I have been saying on the live streams like all year. Um the like all the polls, all the reactions, like everything. Transphobia is not popular. Um, and like from the elections, uh, like all across the country, like school board elections, um, local elections, everywhere, uh, transphobia has is a failing platform. People are resoundingly rejecting it out of hand. People don't want it in their schools. People don't want it in their legislatures. Anywhere that they have a choice, anywhere that they have a power to uh, to just uh, knock it, to airlock it. They are. Yeah, I, I feel like I, I have definitely seen that um, in in the local legislators, um, but also in uh, research. There was a study I can't I can't remember. I'll see if I can get it um, to be posted. But there there was a study where they interviewed a ton of adults, just average everyday adults. Um, what the main issues in America were that they felt like the government should be focusing on, trans people were not on that list. Um, they do not care. And I think that they they focused on it. And I think it's, it's really, they, they thought that this was the tactic that was going to help them win. I think that Youngkin was really relying on this uh, election to help really uh -oh. catapult his agenda because Virginia has been um, a, a swing state for a while and has been, you know, kind of flip-flopping, you know, there's a lot of different, um, a lot of different counties that are flip-flopping in a lot of different ways in Virginia, but has stayed fairly blue is that he's the first Republican um, uh, governor in a long time. And, you know, he was really relying on a Republican House and Senate to, you know, uh, like remove abortion, that abortion access, that was going to be his main thing. He was going to do that like that. He was really relying on this election to catapult his agenda. And, um, you know, people showed up and they let because a lot of what um the Republican candidates were focusing on was transphobia. Um, and people don't care about that. They're actually more concerned about the toll roads and they're more concerned about data centers. They're not concerned about who's using the bathroom. Um, they just, they're just trying to get to work and live truly. They're concerned that it costs them $600 for food for two weeks. They, they have other things to worry about and they know that, the legislators should be worrying about those things. Um, so it, it, the research, literally the research is there. The data is there from people all over the country, but also, you know, we're seeing it in the elections, which is really exciting. 
And like some of the other um, victories that we saw were, um, let's see here, um, four trans state lawmakers are currently serving in, uh, in the in the U.S. Uh, as we previously mentioned, Danica Rome in Virginia, Lisa Bunker and Jerry Cannon in New Hampshire, uh, Brianna Titoni in Colorado. Um, and these lawmakers elected and reelected since 2018 uh, are paving the way for increased trans representation in government. Um, LGBTQ plus re uh, representation in the House. We've got six out of seven representatives in the House have won re-election, showcasing uh, growing LGBTQ representation on the federal level. Uh, trans Refuge State uh, Bills Initiative, uh, legislators in California, maybe, uh, and, uh, New York and Minnesota have introduced bills to protect trans youth. And additionally, 21 LGBTQ lawmakers from 19 states have committed to introducing similar legislation advocating for the rights and safety of trans individuals. So these, these are just, uh, these are what we are starting to see pushing back against this tide of hate that we've been, that we, that's been rising. Yeah. I think fortunately this is a product of their, um, their initiative to undermine LGBTQIA people that they were not expecting. They expected us, I think in many ways to be silenced when we were faced with transphobia, homophobia, queerphobia, but uh, we are the kind of community that gets louder and more powerful. We are a resilient community and we do not tolerate these kinds of acts. And so I think it is much to their chagrin that uh, queer people are running and we are winning. And they're not just electing us because we are queer, they're electing us because we have policies that support people. And this argument, I'm sure, has been exhausted. This idea that um, LGBT anti-LGBTQIA initiatives is a distraction from what voters really actually care about. And in today, I think in particular, it's economic equity. You know, there, that's something that we need is economic equity. People cannot afford health care. They can't afford housing. They can't afford education. They can't afford gas. They can't even afford, ed afford eggs and milk. And yet we're going after drag queens and trans people like it just doesn't make sense it's a very clear distraction from the fact that the republican party is not doing anything to serve their base and in many regards the democratic party isn't either and mm -hmm. i think um you know i am a democrat i'm running as a democrat but i am highly critical of the democratic party and the fact that they haven't followed through in a lot of their promises. And I think that's why you're seeing a lot of um, LGBTQIA people running, a lot of people from marginalized communities running, because we can see right through it. And we know that actually there is something we can do. Why don't you get people that actually care about it rather than, you know, corporate influence into office? Yeah, they wanted us to go back in the closet and we and we said, oh, hell no. Mm -mm. No, <laughs> you ain't getting rid of us. <laughs> so kind of continuing the theme of kind of like the, 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 the turning tides. Um, we, uh, like, uh, uh, I, I did a little bit of looking at like this, uh, this, uh, Pew Research Center poll 
about the Americans' uh, complex view on gender identity and trans issues. And it, it has a generally positive, but kind of mixed, uh, like gen generally positive, but mixed results on it. Like, um, like about 80% of U.S. adults recognize that some level of discrimination uh, exists, right? So a lot of, uh, a lot of, most of the people realize that there is a problem. A uh, majority of Americans favor laws protecting trans individuals from discrimination in employment and like the, the things that you would normally think. Um, but when it comes to like acceptance of trans people, um, like 38% believe society has overly accepted trans people. 36% thinks that society hasn't accepted them enough. And 25% feel that the current level of acceptance is appropriate. And when you think about the current level of acceptance, that 25% is actually kind of horrifying. Or the fact that 38% thinks that we are overly accepted. That 38% is kind of horrifying. What do y'all think? Honestly, personally, I think that because um, I was looking at the, um, the the research, I think yes, I think the, the that twenty five percent can be horrifying. But honestly, I th I'm 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 trying to see this with a little bit a little bit of of positive nuance, right? Because obviously, the thirty eight percent that says we've accepted trans folks way too much. I think that 25%, there's a mixture of opinions that make up that 25%. I think there's probably folks who feel as though, um, you know, the visibility that is uh, happening is enough um, and they don't really actively see any trans hate or trans discrimination when they just look around and they themselves feel very neutral. They're not really treating trans people differently. So um, they may feel that way. Or my mom you would know, fall into that category. Yeah, like where she's blissfully aware she doesn't see anything and she's happy with me. So she's like, I don't see any problems. Yeah, it, it, where, where it's very much like, yeah, I think trans people exist. I think they're out here and they're doing what they're doing and and i think it's fine i don't think that there is a struggle right so there's this lack of knowledge of the struggle um i think is probably part of that 25 percent. but also there may be uh part of that 25 percent are people who um aren't quite as extreme as the 38 percent, where they're thinking okay you know, trans people have enough rights as it is. We don't need to give them more. I don't want them to be more in my face. I don't want them to be, you know, forcing me to be trans. I'm not trans, so they don't need to push their agenda on me. I just want to keep them where they are, is is that. So I think there's a mixture of opinions in that 25%. So I'm seeing, I'm, I'm, I'm having a mixed feeling about that 25%. I think there is some positive in it, possibly, but also some negative. I'm not really sure. I don't know the details okay. of, I see, of I that. I see where you're coming from with that. You know what I mean? Yeah. What do you think, maybe? I think that there's a lot of um, sort of misinfo and sort of misideas, if you will, about what 
trans inclusion in society means. And if I was to say every time I saw a cishet couple engaging in any form of PDA into express, oh my goodness, why are you pushing this on me? Why are you making trying to make me a cishet person? I would sound absurd. And I think that I would hope that folks like that- I make that joke about, all the time. Try to like think about that. I mean, just existing is not pushing it on anybody. And unfortunately the area where I feel like that myth is being pushed the most is in our our public school system and there's this idea there's a very small but very vocal group uh or a few groups rather that are pushing this idea that public schools are trying to trans our kids that they are trying to force them to be queer or gay or trans and it's just it's it's frankly it's absurd and it's very clearly um, coming from a group that has some sort of agenda against the LGBTQIA community. Um, I've been very active in the battle here in California with our school systems. You know, it's interesting. A lot of folks think that California is the safe place for LGBTQIA people. But unfortunately, I saw some of the bills. <laughs> Yeah, unfortunately, we've been seeing that actually they're trying to they're actually trying to force their their homophobia and transphobia on us uh, through legislation and through school systems. Um, I've been very involved in uh, so the city of Glendale, California, which is a part of the congressional district that I'm running in. Uh, Glendale has historically had some conservative roots. In fact, it was a sundown town for many, many years, and it still has some uh some, you know, conservative, it's more conservative than most of LA, I'll put it that way. And Glendale is actually right down the street from where I live. So I live in Silver Lake, which is a neighborhood in Los Angeles. A mile and a half from me is Glendale. And I've had people saying, well, what are you doing here? What what right do you have to be here? And it's like, yo, you're this is my neighbor, my neighboring district. And it's actually part of the congressional district that I'm running in. But what we've been seeing in Glendale, what we've been seeing actually in the L.A. Unified School District, in Temecula, in a number of school districts in Southern California, is this effort by groups that are backed by Moms for Liberty, they're backed by the Proud Boys, and they have created this, again, small but very vocal group of concerned parents who are concerned about parental rights. And so what they do is they show up at these school board meetings and they just will put LGBTQIA anything on blast. And this became very prominent this past spring here in my district, here in Glendale. And uh, I started a, I, I basically tried to bring a bunch of people together who are LGBTQIA or allies or supporters to actually go to the school district and thank the school district members for actually complying with California state laws that require LGBTQIA inclusion and education. And so you have this group of people uh, here specifically, uh, they're known as LOCA, which is an acronym for Leave Our Kids Alone. LOCA is also an appropriate acronym for them, I will say. And basically they are coming to these school board meetings. They're saying, we are parents and we don't want, we don't want you to indoctrinate our kids. We don't want you to force our kids to be gay or trans. That is not happening. Nobody is forcing to do anything. 
and but they they come in they come in so vocal and so you know making a fuss that they make it seem like they're actual parents in that school district but they keep moving it's the same group of people that keeps moving from school district to school districts you i i can't believe that you have children in five different counties that just i i don't believe that that's actually what is happening but they come in very vocal and they say well we're doing this under you know the idea of parental rights but it's under the guise of parental rights and so I've communicated and interacted with and had meetings with actual parents who live in this district who are terrified for their kids. And these are, you know, uh, queer students. These are queer family members, queer teachers, and even just allies who want their kids to participate in a school district that is inclusive of everybody and not exclusive of LGBTQIA people. And they're coming after these school boards, saying that these school boards are trying to indoctrinate their kids, when in reality, the school boards here in California are actually just complying with California state law. They're not going above or beyond. They're doing their job in including LGBTQIA people and including them in LGBTQIA education. They're not talking about explicit sex with second graders. And that's how it's being framed. It is so easy to bring children and to use them as scapegoats, which I think is it's disgusting that they would use children to be their scapegoats to try to have their anti-LGBTQIA agenda move forward. And that's unfortunately what we're seeing happen. Um, fortunately, in Glendale, as I mentioned, which is in my district, we have a really awesome school board. LAUSD, same thing. They are not they're not tolerating anti-LGBTQIA rhetoric. But you are starting to see some of these a little bit more conservative areas like in Temecula, in the Inland Empire, where they are actually going forward with the school policy. So there was let me back up just a second. There was a state assembly member here in California. Uh, he introduced this uh, state bill. I think it was AB 1314, which essentially would have required school districts to inform parents within three days if their child came out as gay or trans or using a different name or different pronouns. And I, I don't think that a lot of people realize how homophobic and transphobic that is and how dangerous it is for queer youth. And I don't think they consider the fact that if a child, if a student is feeling more comfortable coming out to their peers, their teachers, their counselors, than they are their parents, it's a great indicator that something is going on at home and that they are in a home that is homophobic and transphobic. Kids I see don't that all the time. Out, you know, and it's, it's really unfortunate, but um, we have been seeing a great amount of positive pushback um, here in L.A. County. And so it gives me hope that there are a lot of really great people that don't want to see homophobia and transphobia in my county, in Southern California, in California in general. So that is promising, but it does it does disturb me that there is a small but very vocal group of people who unfortunately have the backing of the police who are, you know, trying to make LGBTQIA inclusion, you know, this great villainous idea. What I think is really interesting is, is this, as you were talking about, right, because there, there have been a lot of bills where um, they're basically like, okay, if, if my child you know, comes out socially, like the, this, this term social transitioning, um, 
if my if my child comes out and starts using a different name um, or different pronouns in school, I want to know about it. Um, and 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 that is my right as a parent. And it, taking it a step further from they are the the idea of like okay, implementing that law is is very harmful and dangerous because they're likely coming out at school because they're in a transphobic home but taking it a step further from that is that there is there there is this inherent need for parents and and a lot of this is stemming from the whole parental rights like what is the parents right to you know know how their kid sees themselves in school and that control that they want to have is that in reality what they're trying to do is assert their power over the school district because they don't want their kid to turn out trans or gay they don't want their kid to be enabled to be trans or gay because that is their child they have the authority to tell their child who they should be and how they should be raised. And I didn't raise you to be trans or gay or any one of these liberal uh, labels that they all tell you about and blah, 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 X, Y, and Z, right? But my pushback to that sentiment and that, that statement is that if you, as a parent, are struggling so hard to unconditionally love your kid and the only thing your kid has done at 10 years old is say, I don't want to be Susie. I want to be Sam. If the only kid, the only thing your kid has done at 12 years old, 13 years old is go to school and say, I don't really feel like I'm an Andrew. I feel like I'm a Sarah. And that's who I want to be. And it actually makes me happy. Your kid's 12. And if you're not ready to unconditionally love your kid in a way that makes them happy, it, it really, it really makes me question why you even became a parent in the first place. Because if you can't unconditionally love a kid that you have raised, that you claim to love, if that love is conditional based on these expectations that you have for them, and they haven't done any wrong in this world, they're a kid, they're a minor. They have, they're, they're, they're just exploring the world. They don't really know anything. Their brain is still developing. They're still learning. They're still growing. If you can't love them through those phases of their life, why did you become a parent? Why? It actually, it actually like blows my mind. It, it, cause it's, it just seems to be so difficult. And regardless of what your what your morals are what you want to raise your kid as i can't control that i can't control how you raise your kid but i can say we're not going to actively harm kids and create unsafe environments in public schools that's where your authority stops you drop your kid off to public school the school is going to make the decision for what they believe is best under the laws because that's what the legislation does if it's not harming your kid. It's a public school, right? So it, it just, it, it really frustrates me because I, I hear the logic, but I also rebuke it and I say, why is your love for your kid conditional? Hello. What message is that sending? Uh, why? It's, uh, it's also, you know, I think there's this idea, I, 
I'm a not, I'm not a parent, and I, I I tiptoe around expressing what a parent should or shouldn't do because I'm not a parent. But what I have noticed as a human being who has seen parents with children, I unfortunately see a lot of parents who have this idea that their kids are mini me's who can who are they control them and this is how my kid is going to be. When in reality. Mm -hmm. You know, kids and kids is such a loose term. Teenagers are starting to become autonomous human beings. And it would be wrong to say that you don't have any sort of idea of who you are when you're a teenager. That's when you're starting to come of age. And consent is a very important idea, especially when it comes to children. But one thing that's really bothered me about seeing this, uh, these groups of parents coming after parental rights, especially in my area, they've been wearing these shirts that say, my kid, my consent. And that is just as untrue mm. as allowing your kid to consent to certain things. And so you can you can try all you want to shape your kid in a certain way. But ultimately, if you are the parent of a queer kid who is going to become a queer adult, they're going to resent you. And you can try mm. as much as you want to to shape your kid the way that you want. But that is actually the grooming that they are complaining about. And... <laughs> They're trying to groom their kids to be these proper cis, hats, you know, people. And that's not how it works. I mean, queer adults at one point were queer kids. And I remember mm. when I was a queer youth and I remember this was, you know, early 2000s and there wasn't a lot of talk about um, queerness publicly. And I was really nervous to come out because I felt that my parents wouldn't accept me. And I had just sort of heard a little bit of this and that you hear, you hear the things that your parents say when you're a kid. And I had heard mm -hmm. a few things that sort of led me to believe that my parents might not accept me as a queer person. And eventually when I was outed, um, which was not actually intentional, I this was in the days of AOL Instant Messenger, and I was messaging <laughs> with somebody, and I left it open on the family computer. My mom happened to see it, and when my mom realized that she was the parent of a queer youth, that really changed her ideas and her opinion about, about queer people, and um, I just don't think that parents... I, I think that they think that they really can control what their kids are going to be like when they're adults. But they're something they don't consider is the innateness of being queer and allowing your child to shine as they are and loving your child unconditionally. And I think that's something that a lot of parents have to grapple with. But that's that's on them. That shouldn't be on their on their kids or the rest of the LGBTQIA community. And I think it's hard to then force that idea as something that public school um, officials have to comply to is knowing that they have to implement these harmful policies that, like you were saying, these traveling hate groups are going around complying and pushing force to this, uh, forth this agenda that is not even popular in the first place and is rooted in a lot in a place of hate. Cause I can't, I can't imagine being a school counselor and having to out kids knowing that that kid's probably going to go home and come back to school the next day in, in, in worse shape. 
It totally depletes I had to make a call. It totally depletes their trust of adults who they believe that they should have trust in. And there, you should be able as a queer mm. to be able to trust certain human beings. And the fact that, you know, there are people who are trying to institute laws to require the outing of students, it's it's actually it's harmful and it is dangerous for LGBTQIA youth. And, um, you know, I'd mentioned earlier that there was a bill that was introduced in California that would have required that. Fortunately, the bill uh, died before it was able to move to the governor's office, which I'm sure he probably would have vetoed anyways. But the unfortunate effect of that was the fact that now you have school districts who are independently trying to install that that particular rule. And there have unfortunately been a number of school districts in Southern California, including in Temecula, in the Inland Empire, where the school district has decided to implement that policy of if a student comes out to peers, teachers, counselors, that they are then going to inform the parents within three days. Um, The fortunate thing of that though, is that it is being challenged highly in the state of California through our judicial system. So the courts are fortunately um, on our side, just based off of the state laws that we have. But again, it makes me consider this is California is in many ways considered to be, you know, the most progressive or one of the most progressive states. It just makes me very, very worried about queer youth in every other state, in states that do not have, um, you know, democratic um, electeds that that don't have people that are on the side of queer people, because when it comes down to things like that, it's very easy for a judge or someone to make this decision that, okay, well, you know what, everyone in this state now has to comply with this. And so we have these sort of like tossed up rules when it comes state to state. And it's really unfortunate that we have safe states for LGBTQIA people and we have unsafe states. And that's something that we have to reconcile as a queer community. And I think that's one of the big things that we need to stand up for and consider as we move forward in considering how we want to impact our community, not just ourselves, but you know the future LGBTQIA community, because queer people have always been here. We're always going to be here. We're young, we're old, we're everything in between. And we're just, we're not going away. And I just hope that the further along we go in time, we make it a better world for people like us. Mm. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, lost my page in the outline. So, you know, I think that we have covered a lot of ground. What do you think, Cecily and Tabitha? Yeah, we 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 have covered a lot tonight. Oh my goodness, <laughs> we I'm. Good luck editing. <laughs> oh my god, I'm it's my very, favorite thing to do. No, I'm 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 saying good luck because I, there's so much there's so much here and yeah. As long as we stop here in just the next half hour, it'll let me upload to my app. Otherwise, it won't be it, it won't let me do it if I'm 3 hours past. But it's okay. So what we're going to do now yeah. is we're going to take some time to um just wrap up and take a moment to celebrate our, excuse me, our community and read those little bit of scripts there and then end out and finish the night. Maybe. Thank you so much for being here. Oh my God. Ways. No, I'm very excited to be here amongst community. 
Um, I'm very excited to have you here. Thank you so much. Yeah. It's great, great to meet you too. Great to meet everyone. Also, can everyone drop their socials in the chat? Because I want to make sure that we're staying in touch outside of just these conversations. I'd love to, I love everything that everyone has said. And I just want to make sure that I'm always following and hearing your opinions on everything. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, what, uh, well, I'll drop my link tree because I'm on multiple socials. So I want to thank Tabitha for being here as always on the Trans Narrative for Now Civic Report and Cecily, Cecily Thomas, thank you for being here as well. Um, I hope that our audience is so lucky to get a chance to listen to you a lot more next season. So hopefully um, you'll be here. The audience already loves you. I can already tell you that. So you don't have a choice. Um, <laughs> no, but um, I really enjoyed you being here tonight. Thank you for, for taking time with us to be on the Trans Narrative Civic Report. And maybe, maybe a girl. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you for spending time with us this afternoon as well, or evening, or wherever you're listening. <laughs> Um, my link tree's not working. I'll just do my Insta. Maybe. S Maybe. Sorry, what did I miss? Uh -huh. no, it says okay. my, uh, no, my, uh, my freaking link tree isn't working. So I will just put my, Insta. my link tree. Well, I'm so glad that we all joined here. And Noah, Noah, the Stigma Fighter Buchanan, thanks for being here with us as well. They were here in the first portion of this civic report. And golly, I just cannot wait. One more episode, Tabitha, of the Trans Narrative Civic Report. And then, oh my, the things that are going to happen. I'm so excited. Oh. It's going to get, oh, it's going to be so much better. So I, I can't wait. Audience, please make sure you go to anchor.fm slash civic report. Otherwise, starting January 3rd, you'll be missing out on this program because it will not be here on the Trans Narrative Podcast. Anyway, um, so with that, it is Trans Awareness Week. I think that before we read off the script, if each of us could just take a moment to um, share just a just like a a sentiment of of you know what it feels like to be here right now. This is. You know, we're in history. Can you believe it? We're we're in the like we're in history right now. Fifty years from now, they're gonna look back and and you know, on on, on season sixty-two of the trans narrative podcast or the civic report, they're gonna say, Man, y'all remember when you know they were there, the first original generation of co-hosts just like trying to get through all that transphobia and and we're here now. Season sixty-five, they would say. And um I just can't we can't I can't I can't imagine. So I'm really excited that we're here in the making. So we're making history. And as we make history, let's add our statements to cement into the existence forever this week. Um, let's start with Cecily. Ooh, um, well, my statement, I'm very, very grateful to be where I am and around the people that I'm with right now. I have met some incredible people in the past few weeks, and I look forward to the to the future people that I will meet. Um, but I think right now, as I'm looking at the movement in general, right, doing legislative tracking work, doing advocacy work, 
Um, I, I know it looks bleak and I know it looks like there isn't a way out and that there's no light at the end of the tunnel that they, you know, bombed the end of the tunnel and it's, there's no way out, but there is, we have to keep going. Um, and sometimes that means we take baby steps, but sometimes that means we take leaps and we take risks, right? But the point is that we're doing it together. And so my main message would be that, you know, if you're out there, you're listening, you're scared, you're concerned, you're listening to this podcast because you feel like there is no way out and that there may not be a way out. I want you to know that there are people like me, there are people like maybe, there are people like Tabitha, there are people like national advocates that I've met that are incredible people who are putting out content, who are fighting to make sure that you will be loved in the way that you deserve to be loved and that we will all be liberated from the horrible system of transphobia and white supremacy and all of the different systems that white supremacy has created, like racism, like sexism, like xenophobia, like ableism. So we are out here and we are working. Um, and during Trans Awareness Week, we are we are bringing light to the beauty of trans as well, um, that we are beautiful no matter what anyone says, that we are vast and we are creative and we are smart and we're driven um, and and I, I, I hope you sit with that, whoever you are, wherever you are. I hope that you sit with that and know that we're fighting and we're, we're going to make it. We're going to be okay. Abatha, what's your message? I am always telling people to, uh, talking about how, oh, you had to put me on the spot, didn't you? <laughs> yeah, uh, I'm always wrestling with that balance between but because like being on the front line is really freaking hard. Looking at all of this stuff coming down the pipe and still seeing a light at the end of the tunnel. And especially when there are so so few people standing with us right like not a lot with the array of people standing against us and so few people standing with us that especially with the people who were supposed to be but i always take heart in the knowledge and like this is one of the early things that alex said to me that echoes in my head every time like on our first stream alex and sammy were on and Alex said that we need to remember that fascism always fails. It's unsustainable. It always falls. It always crumbles. It's not a matter of if. And so the thing that, uh, uh, so the louder we, the louder we yell, the harder we fight, the more we hold together, the more we support each other, the, and just, Everything that we do, even if it comes, it will, everything that we do will make that period just a little bit shorter. Everything that we do matters. And
seems a slight tangent for a little bit, uh, but then I'm going to bring it back, is we always talk about it, like whenever we watch a movie about time travel, we always worry about, like they're always talking about the butterfly effect. It's like, oh, if we go back in time, we've, we got to worry about like what, what like uh, a little pencil or a little like talking to somebody, talking to the wrong person or moving this or moving that because the littlest thing could erase a person in the future. Well, conversely, we, ne we never think about like applying that logic. Every little thing that we do now can have such a massive impact on our future. Any little action, every little voice, every pencil, every word that we write, every like, every share, a word of support to somebody can have that ripple effect that reinforces somebody that causes monumental fundamental change that can shorten the, the shorten that nighttime of fascism or even pre prevent it altogether so we just got to make sure that we keep together so, and support each other that is that is beautiful thank you maybe what's yours so this Trans Awareness Week, uh, I just want to say that it is an incredible honor and an incredible responsibility to make sure that we are advocating for trans awareness, not just here, but everywhere. I truly believe that folks are going to look back on this period of time and recognize it as the moment of trans liberation. And it requires all of us to be active participants, whether or not we are trans, queer, gay, or just an ally. Now is the moment to stand up and speak on behalf of, of queer people, of trans people. And again, this is not just a Western idea, this is a global idea. And this idea of, of trans liberation, I will say that liberation cannot be achieved through the taking away of somebody else's liberation. Trans liberation is only achievable if we achieve liberation for everybody. And that includes not just folks in the West, but it includes folks in the East, globally, and folks in Palestine. So my message this week on Trans Awareness Week would, would be just, you know, me personally, all I ever wanted was a community to connect with, to to grow, to share. And I'm so grateful that as we celebrate this week and raise awareness of, of the great things that we have done in our community and world and the challenges that we're facing, that I have a group of people that I can keep to who are not judging me for my character and who help and support and see potential. That's something that I always wanted. And and I hope that more people, as we begin to to tear down the barriers between us and and you know liberate trans people and, and our rights, that more people get to experience that sense of community that I've longed for. I spent my whole life just longing for what I have right here. And and I'm just so grateful to have that here. And with you, each of you, and I'm thankful to the audience for always tuning in and being a part of this journey. This is 
the most meaningful thing I've ever done. And I'm just so grateful that, that on this week, uh, I get to be a part of celebrating that and being with people to celebrate that and to have a platform to speak. I think that that is the coolest. And so with that, I, I never think anything I say is ever good enough, but I hope that was good. So, um, anyway, how about we go off and read that little thingy that we, that we all agreed to read at the end. So I'll get us started. So, so before we end this episode of the trans narrative civic report, I'd like to take a moment to celebrate our community, each of us. This week is a special one. It's Trans Awareness Week. It's our chance to amplify our voices, share our inspiring stories, and stand together in solidarity. Trans Awareness Week is a celebration of the resilience, diversity, and strength of the trans community. It's a time for highlighting trans voices and experiences and for supporting each other in our shared journeys. Let's use this opportunity to both honor the progress we've made and recognize the work that still lies ahead. We're celebrating every victory, big and small, as we continue to advocate for equality and acceptance. And remember, every voice in our community is important. Every story adds to our rich tapestry and every individual brings value. This week and indeed every week, let's unite in support of each other and work towards a world that's more inclusive and accepting for all. Happy Trans Awareness Week. Let's make it memorable and meaningful. Hey everyone, if you like this episode of the Trans Narrative Podcast, be sure to subscribe, like, and follow. This podcast is available on Apple, Audible, Amazon, Spotify, Google, or YouTube. Today's episode was recorded on November 11th, 2023. Today's show was hosted by Caroline Penny, and joining as our correspondents from the Transformations Project, Tabitha B. and Cecily Thomas. Noah Buchanan joins from the Trans Narrative Podcast. Today's special guest was Maybe a Girl. The Trans Narrative Podcast was created by Caroline Penny and produced, directed, and edited by Caroline Penny. Music provided by Athena Promakis. This episode was brought to you by Spotify for Podcasters. If you'd like to reach out, learn more, be a guest, or are looking to get involved with the show, email us at transnarrativepodcast at gmail.com. The Trans Narrative Podcast is dedicated to fostering a safe and inclusive space for the trans community. It provides a platform for trans individuals to connect, share their stories, and find support within their own community. Thanks for joining as we hear the stories of gender diverse people and celebrate our community.